Welcome to Just Quietly, a podcast where Senator Amanda Stoker has a laugh with friends and colleagues, cuts through the bull, and explores the issues of the day. Let's get to the bottom of it all. Hello and welcome to Just Quietly. I'm Amanda Stoker. I'm an LNP Senator for Queensland and I am joined today by Janet Wishart. Janet is the LNP's candidate for Mansfield, but to call her that in a way really sells her short because her story is so much more interesting than her face on a blue core flute. Janet, thank you so much for joining me. So good to be with you, Amanda, and thank you for having me. Uh, it's such a privilege to be here this morning with you and, uh, and to be able to speak to you and to speak to all our listeners this morning. I have loved being on the campaign trail with you, and part of the reason I've enjoyed it so much is because you aren't like most candidates I've come across, and that's no insult to anyone else, um, but... In everything you do, I just see so much heart and people associate politics with, you know, hard-headed people and head kickers and all that sort of stuff and there's none of that with you. It's all warmth and and kindness and empathy and um, in a way that entirely fits with our values and I just find that fantastic. So, tell those who are listening, hi everyone, um, a little bit about you and what brought you here. Thanks, Amanda. Uh, look, I'll I'll start by saying it's been so good to be out there with you as well because uh, what I love being on the campaign trail with people is because I care so deeply about people. And so I guess that's really why I'm here. I've spent the last 20 years of my life being on the ground with people. You know, from the time I was a little girl, we spent most of our time serving the local community. My grandmother, my mother, all of my family were involved in local community groups. And so that was an incredible part of uh, the way I was brought up. And so I've, I've always been passionate about community. I've always been passionate about the everyday person, the everyday family. And so all of my working life has been based around that. You know, I, I moved, I grew up in Toowoomba, moved down here to Brisbane to go to university, met my husband at university, uh, got married and uh, started my working life in disabilities care and aged care and palliative care. I loved that. I was a therapist in that area. And, uh, and that just really cemented my love for people and uh, being able to serve people and being able to be a, a, a difference for people, having a voice for the people who needed it. So we uh, then moved over to Perth for a couple of years and, and had kids and I stayed at home with my babies. My, my uh, most important and precious role is as a mum and uh, I've got three kids, two boys and a girl who are now 18, 16 and 14 and then came back to Brisbane and uh, really wanted to go back into a, a serving role and so started working at a, at a local church and volunteering there and, and became a pastor on that church and for the last 10 years have spent my life taking care of families uh, and older adults and seniors and uh, just loved the local community, loved being a part of people's stories. People's stories matter to me and uh, people's experiences matter to me and I'm passionate about being a voice for people who need a voice. And one of my most recent roles was as a advocate for families, uh, for children actually I should say, who are at risk and uh, who have been abused and exploited 
and uh, and it was during all of that experience and all of my working life and uh, our family's experience certainly uh, was a, was filled with a bit of challenge as well. My oldest one, our oldest child, was uh, born with some physical conditions, so we've had quite a challenging journey with him. And it's the people that I've met along the road through my journey, through my working life that inspired me to step into this next season. You know, I became increasingly frustrated by uh, the, the processes and the policies and the decisions that were being made that were so frustrating. And I saw a need and a gap in what we as the government were providing and uh, what we needed on the ground for our people. So became increasingly frustrated. I'll, I'll be honest, I never saw myself going into politics. <laughs> it was never something that I had on my radar. I never thought, okay, one day I, I really want to go and be a politician. It was not something I saw coming, but I had a few people sort of prompt me with it and it became an increasing conviction that uh, I needed to step into this arena. And I could have all the opinions and I could be on the sideline cheering people on to, to make change or I could lend my voice to it and step into the ring and fight for the people who needed it the most so here I am in this new season and uh, what I love about it is exactly what you said there is being able to be a voice and being out and hearing from the hearts of people in our local community and lending strength to what they need and as I said that that last role for me of advocating for children at risk uh, really resonated with uh, what I see is the most vulnerable in our community and the need to fight for that. It's really interesting because, well, for a few reasons, one, because people assume um, that those who become Liberal National Party candidates um, are, t- to use um, Anthony Albanese's and um, Bill Shorten's language from the big end of town, mm. but you've crafted um, your life around service of others, whether that's in palliative care, whether that's in speaking up for children um, who are being failed by the adults around them, whether that is by um, helping out for people with a disability. Um, what do you reckon that on-the-ground experience would do for you if you had the opportunity to serve in Parliament? Look, I think that the role of a parliamentarian and a Member of Parliament, and if I'm privileged to be able to be elected to that role, is one of representation and one of service. It's, it's not a career move. It should be about being able to fight for that which was most important yeah. in our society. And Servant leadership, people. right? Exactly. Yeah. And it's a privilege. It's an honour to be elected to that position and, uh, and I see it as that. Um, my heart is uh, very much to be able to be, as I've said, a voice for the people who needed it most and to serve the local community but also to build a future for uh, our children Uh, We need to be able to carry on the legacy that we're so blessed with here in in Australia, you know, to to be able to have the vote, uh, the right to vote and have a a democratic process here. That's a gift that we've been handed and it's one that we shouldn't take for granted. So it's also to be able to fight for that which is yet to come and to leave them a legacy by which they can stand in the freedoms that we've been passed on. And, uh, And so I think... Being on the ground with people uh, has really inspired me to to continue to serve in that way, not just this current generation, but for the generations to come. Well, they're going to need all the help they can get as our state um, racks up $90 billion worth of debt, despite having invested never so little 
in um, the kind of infrastructure that's needed to open up our economy to make sure there's jobs available for our kids. Um, there's heaps of work to do uh, to get this state moving again and it's just wonderful to see you on the, on the task. For what it's worth, um, you know, lots of people say to me, how do you make politics work with kids? You know, three kids, oh my gosh, that's hard enough on its own. Um, and then you've got to deal with politics as well. And, ah, oh, politicians are awful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, the thing is, there's something about being a parent, I think, that makes you so determined to fix the big things uh, because there could be no better motivation than getting it right for the people that you love, um, including your wider community, but also for the kids that you want to leave it to. Um, and so there's a certain determination, a, a don't mess with me kind of um, steel in the spine of parents, male and female, that I think makes them really very good in politics. So you're, um, you've got what it takes, I think. Well, and I think on that one, Amanda, certainly the journey that I've been through as a parent, you know, I really love the fact that you see that I've got a really big heart but I'm also incredibly determined and I've got a lot of fight in me. So where there's injustice, uh, I won't back down from that. Where there's a need, I will not back down from that. Where we need to build a better future, I will not back down from that. That is, uh, there's a strength there that I believe uh, we need in leadership to be able to move forward. And so heart comes with strength. It's not a weakness. It's a motivating factor. And so being a parent, as you know yourself, uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of leadership in, in, in parenting in itself. And, uh, yeah, that's and, right. And so being able to bring all of that experience to this as well is, is a big motivating factor for me. Which I guess brings us to something that fits um, very well with your expertise, but I think has been a cause for sadness for everybody, parents, even those who aren't. Um, and that is some of the... Um, what seem to be emerging as patterns in failures from um, our state government to provide protection to vulnerable people in our community. We got a report recently from the Queensland coroner about the death of poor little toddler Mason Jet Lee that was absolutely scathing. I mean, it's the, the coroner's described the handling of his case as a failure in nearly every way. And... I mean, we can never be comfortable with what's happened to this gorgeous little boy. Um, but when we consider that this isn't an isolated incident, um, we've had to hear about the sadness of little Willow mm -hmm. being mistreated and, and losing her life um, so recently. And these children are in a long list of uh, ones who have been let down by child safety. Now, I'm the first to acknowledge that they're working in a really difficult space. When you've got parents that aren't meeting the grade um, and we know that they're at risk, um, they are going into dangerous territory. They're doing hard stuff. And I, I don't want to um, dismiss the, the difficulty of the task of protecting children who are in the care of parents who are not doing their job. Um, but at the same time, we can't let this keep going on. What's your take on what's going on? What's going wrong here? Look, Amanda, I think like many Queenslanders, every time a news line uh, comes up with another case, it's not just another statistic. It's not just another number. And unfortunately, there's too many of those yeah. cases that we're, that we're seeing. I mean, in the last week, we, we saw, uh, you know, 
two headlines of the most horrific circumstances and and I'm sure you and we're like uh, myself and many other Queenslanders who found it very very difficult to to read the stories and to look at the faces and to to hear of the circumstances of beautiful little Willow Dunn and then those two boys in Stafford last week and then to hear this uh, coroner's report come out this week you're right, Amanda, you know, speak to a lot of uh, workers on the front line who are doing their in- an incredible job to go into spaces and into places that are so difficult and many of them are crying out because they're so desperate to help these families but they just are within a broken system. And so I think we're at a point where we must continue to have the difficult conversations and call to account uh, the system that is failing time and time again because every single one of those uh, statistics that we see, every every part of that coroner's report that comes out, and I think there were twenty one, uh, you know, failures that were that there were identified. Were. Well, Mason paid the price for those failures with his life, and we are seeing too many vulnerable Queensland children and families pay the price for a system which is broken. And it can't continue. It's it's not okay. It's never been okay. And and we have to come to the point by which we now move forward, hold those who are accountable to account and fix the system and make some change because it's simply not good enough. And Willow deserved better. Those boys deserve better. Mason Lee certainly deserved better. And they're just the ones that we know about. Yeah. You know, sadly, I'm hearing out on, uh, you know, out on the ground from multiple, multiple families every week from the failures that they're experiencing, uh, not just in child safety, but in uh, the provision of services for their families. And these are real families crying out for help. We have to raise our voice to their voice because it, it has to change. It really does, doesn't it? I mean, it's it's worth going through... Um, the the horrific treatment um, he experienced. He's a little boy. He had illicit drugs in his system. He was just 22 months old. Um, and he had been struck in the abdomen by his mother's boyfriend so hard that it ruptured his small intestine, which then got infected. And the coroner found that he died in unimaginable pain. I mean... That makes me almost want to cry when I think about how small he is. Um, And then we look to what the coroners had to say about um, the way that the department um, operated on his case. And it's it's just horrendous. Um, The coroner said that Mason should have been seen face-to-face 12 times between March 15 and June 11... And um, you know, he died in June 2016. But he was only seen once and only for five minutes. And that's despite the fact that um, a neighbour had told a child safety officer um, that Ms. Mr O'Sullivan, the, um, the boyfriend, was dangerous and violent, was holding Mason hostage. Um, but no one took any action to assess his safety and they just went home. Mm. Now, I can see how there would be sadly, an element of desensitisation when you're seeing so many difficult cases. Um, but there's, there's an obvious failure here to do even the very basics. I mean, when he should have been checked in 12 times and he was seen once for five minutes, um, that's, 
that's quite obviously wrong. Um, which suggests that there is an enormous opportunity here to do even small things that would make an enormous difference to the functionality of the department. Um, but how, how do we change a system? I mean, I've got a couple of ideas on this, but <laughs> I'm more interested in what you've got to say. Um, how do we change a system where um, everything we read about it suggests that the needs and um, the wants and the likes of adults, often adults who aren't always doing the right thing, are being prioritised over the needs and, well, not even wants, they're the basic needs and rights of children who have nowhere else to turn. Yeah, and I think that in this case, Amanda, it, it is incredibly challenging to read some of those uh, some of those aspects of this story because it's not a once-off failure. It's multiple, multiple failures. And, you know, the coroner's report also condemned, you know, the, the Palaszczuk Labor government uh, were given down some, inquir- um, some recommendations from the 2013 Carmody Commission of Inquiry. And he, he makes special note of, uh, of that in this particular report because he, they failed to implement any of the key recommendations that came out in that in 2013. So we're looking at uh, not just a one-off but years of failures and years of uh, having recommendations made to a government around uh, how they can improve and make changes in this department in order to protect the children and we're seeing them being completely ignored. And I think you're right in the fact that it seems to be that in the attempt to uh, protect the children, it's often the perpetrators and uh, others that are put as a priority. And the children who often have no voice uh, are put down the line in the priorities of, of uh, protection. And I think that it it actually is completely contradictory to the entire name of a department, the Child Safety Department. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and it, it seems to be that it's not child safety at all. Uh, it, in fact, it seems to be that multiple times those children are being left abandoned by a system that's meant to protect them. And as is we've both acknowledged here, you know, the frontline workers are out there doing their best and are desperate to help these families. But in this particular circumstance, um, there seems to be a, a multiple failures on multiple staff members. Uh, in order to address this particular child and any one of those staff members made a different decision, we wouldn't have seen the, the traumatic and the horrific death of this young uh, Queensland boy. So as of November last year, 66% of households with substantiated harm or risk of harm assessments um, for a child had a parent with a current or a past drug or alcohol abuse problem. Um, for little Mason... Uh, there are five um, primary parent risk factors that the department looks for. Um, they are domestic violence, drug and alcohol abuse, parental experience of abuse or neglect as a child, mental illness or criminal history. All of them were present for his life. He still didn't get checked in in the way that he should have been. And I can't help but think that when one of those primary risk factors is um, parent experience of abuse or neglect as a child, um, that every failing we have now is 
laying the groundwork for another generation of people who have been neglected or abused to do the same thing um, in what is, you know, that horrific cycle of people repeating the only thing they know. And so the imperative to get this right is um, it's not just about now and it's not just about um, all the little Masons that need helping now. It's about helping to make sure that they don't grow up mm-hmm. to harm others and um, the connection between drug and alcohol abuse and childhood trauma is high. It's not a full explainer, but it is a part of the story and a real and significant factor. Um, it's also a factor in, in criminal history. All of these things are connected. Um, in many ways, I just think we need to get serious about um, saying we understand, adult, parent, um, that you've had a rough life and we want your life to get better and we'll give you help for your life to get better. But your child's needs are more important. I think early intervention, I yep. think early identification. I think we have a government and a system that is reactive uh, too far down in the process. It's a good way to describe it. And I think that we need to be able to respond uh, earlier and we also need to be proactive in this space to be able to, as you, you so rightly mentioned there, there's m- multiple risk factors which have been identified to put a child at risk. And so if we know that the child's at risk, then let's be at the coalface of that risk before it takes place and before it becomes a victim so that we can intervene and provide support mechanisms around those families. I mean, I've heard multiple stories where people have said they cried out saying, I can't do this anymore, I need help. That's the point of intervention that uh, we should be focusing so much attention to so that we are not seeing a a child safety department which is overrun by victims of, uh, of, of abuse but we're actually working proactively to prevent them from becoming a victim in the first place. That's really the guts of it, isn't it? Mm. Um, Of course, we see these kinds of um, failings, not just in child safety. Um, You were telling me some stories about um, what locals in Mansfield have been telling you. Um, Can you recap those? Look, every single uh, case of child safety... Uh, failure and every uh, abuse victim is heartbreaking. I think what we found last week uh, and the common thread in those two cases which were, uh, you know, which most of Queensland would be aware of was little Willow Dunn, uh, who was a beautiful little girl with Down syndrome, and then the two boys over in Stafford uh, who were two young teenage, well, they're young adults, I think 17 and 19-year-old on the autism spectrum disorder, um, on the autism spectrum. And unfortunately what I'm hearing in my local community is uh, a failure to support families of kids with special needs. And uh, there, there is a lot of support out there and I know the federal government's NDIS program has been uh, pivotal in providing that support for a lot of families. But what I'm hearing week after week, Amanda, is these families are finding themselves in circumstances by which they need uh, the state government and uh, the child uh, health the department to come around them and to provide uh, assistance in some, some truly challenging circumstances with their children. And unfortunately, there's gaps. Um, and unfortunately, these families are being turned away. 
uh, or or they're just not fitting within the system. They're not fitting within the boxes, uh, and and so they're falling through the cracks. And I'm hearing some truly uh, disturbing and horrific stories of families who are doing their best to support and to care for and to love their children, uh, but are crying out for help. Uh, I know of uh, families who are forced to live in separate residences uh, because uh, of the the care that they need to give to one child puts the other children at risk. Gosh, that would be so hard to have to split your family that you you love all of them and have to split them in half just to keep some of the other children safe. Absolutely, and to provide the care for the, you know the the child with a special need, and in this season too through the coronavirus season, it has taken such oh, a toll on being these families. Being up, gosh. Yeah, all of their familiar routine has been uh, stripped away from them. Uh, they, you know, the schools being closed, access to their normal support systems, a lot of their carers haven't been able to be accessed. So these families went from um, being in a desperate state to being in a truly emergent state in these last couple of months. And it's... It, it is a desperate need across our community. And unfortunately, uh, time and time again, I'm hearing from more failures of the department to not even uh, provide care for them, but to even provide opportunity to hear their stories and to uh, be able to give voice to what's going on for these families. It's, it's, uh, it's truly disappointing. Yeah, to see the health department dropping the ball so badly at a time when we know is critical for child development but also for family survival is is really hard. It's really hard. So it's probably a good moment to do a big shout out to all the parents, the the mums, the dads, the carers, um, the, the foster carers who um, give up so much to contribute to help making a child's life better and to those who are um, struggling through permanency processes and um, – Everybody, wherever you're at in, in the stage of life, whether you're caring for a child with special needs, um, struggling to educate them um, within, within your skill set. There's, there's so many challenges on the road of being a parent. And so a big shout out to you all um, for, for struggling on and giving your best. And um, it will no doubt be appreciated by your children as they grow. There are so many heroes out there, Amanda. I mean, as as challenging and as uh, devastating are so many of these stories, so many of these families are truly my heroes. They really are the reason why I continue to to get up in the morning and be so passionate to fight for them because they are the ones who are living their story and their story matters and their family matters and their children's future matters. And so they are the, they're the heroes. They are the, the everyday heroes who are making a difference, not just for their own family and their own children, uh, but for families of Queensland. Well, I know that if you have the opportunity to serve as the member for Mansfield, you would um, give a real sense of being heard to each and every one of them. So thank you for the work that you're doing in this important policy space. Thank you for the work you're doing as an outstanding candidate on the campaign trail. And thank you for your, your deep love for the people in Mansfield and particularly vulnerable people in our community. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Amanda, and thanks for having me this morning.